You're listening to Notes from the Council Chambers podcast with myself, Nick J. Mosby. It's a podcast where I talk to some of Baltimore's thinkers to discuss issues of today and how we move our city forward. In this episode, President Mosby talks to Dr. Lawrence Brown, author of The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America, about his book and the construction of segregation in the city of Baltimore. Today, I have the opportunity to have Dr. Lawrence Brown on my podcast. From 2013 to 2019, he served as an assistant and associate professor at the Morgan State University in the School of Community Health and Policy. That's where he launched the Be More Lead Free Initiative. Today, we're talking about his groundbreaking book, The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America. Listening audience, please welcome to Notes from Council Chambers podcast, Dr. Lawrence T. Brown. What's up, Dr. Brown? How are you doing today? Hey, now, it's good to be here. Doing well. Thank you. All right. Well, you you um, you were in Baltimore for quite some time. You left and then you you blew up into this national figure based <laughs> off of this amazing book. Um, but I guess uh, to the listening audience, just let them know a little bit more about you from a contextual perspective. You know, how did uh, the amazing person called Dr. Brown and all of your wit, wisdom uh, and, 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 and knowledge um, kind of shape some of your thought processes and, 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 you know, what you've talked about over the past couple of decades? So who, who's Dr. Brown? Well, first of all, I just want to thank you for this invitation. It's a high honor to be able to speak uh, to you as city council president about my work, The Black Butterfly Basically, I'm a son of and a grandson of sharecroppers and folks who pick cotton and soybeans in the Arkansas and Mississippi Delta. Um, you know, I basically was uh, a product of, you know, teachers and preachers and folks who uh, were just hardworking people. And like many black folks, uh, you know, coming out of Jim Crow people, their great migration brought my family out of Mississippi and into the Memphis area. So my hometown is West Memphis, Arkansas. And then from there, we moved to Texas. And that's where I left to go to college at Morehouse in 97. And then also went to the University of Tennessee Health Science Center and University of Houston. So a lot of my training and academic work was in the South. uh, And I got a chance to see like these very segregated areas um, like Atlanta, Memphis, Houston, and that shaped a lot of my thinking, you know, around these issues in urban areas. Uh, And then in 2010, I moved to Baltimore, uh, had a chance to do a postdoctoral fellowship at Morgan State under the leadership of Dr. Kim Sitnor, Dobson Sitnor, um, and worked with two local organizations, uh, the Men's and Family Center in East Baltimore, and then also Union Baptist Head Start in West Baltimore. In those early years, you know, from 2010 to 2012, they really shaped my view, you know, and I got a chance to see like the good, the goodness in Baltimore because I, I, I hadn't seen the wire yet. So I had a chance to see like in the Head Start fathers, black fathers, like bringing their kids you know, picking up their kids from the Head Start, talking to teachers. And I'm like, this is, you know, I wish people could see the way that these men are, you know, working against that stereotype that black men aren't involved in the lives of their children. I'm like, well, that's not true. 
once you come through this head start and take a look. So those are the types of things that shaped, I think, you know, in me in West Baltimore, then in East Baltimore, working with the Men's and Family Center, Leon Purnell, uh, you know, and seeing, you know, again, men and trying to connect men with healthcare in the city and, you know, seeing the tremendous work that they do. And that's where I learned about EBDI, Hopkins, uprooting uh, the black community there. Um, and so those are my formative experiences in the city and just seeing organizers, regular everyday people, you know, Baltimoreans like just living their lives and trying to make the city better. That's what really inspired me and brought me to the point of sort of writing the book. Wow. So with all your travels um, from different urban environments, um, do you have any like striking dif dif uh, differences that you were able to like from from a fresh perspective when you came into Baltimore that you're able to kind of uncover uh, Baltimore in comparison to some of the other places you've traveled? Ah, that's a good question. I think, you know, in Atlanta, as a college student, I learned a lot about like uh, they were in the last phase of tearing down public housing. You know, Hope Six, Clinton, President Clinton's policy of Hope Six, demolishing public housing units and, um, you know, relocating people. So I learned a lot about that. And Baltimore, I think, has a very serious, similar experience of the demolition of public housing, Murphy Homes, Lexington Terrace, you know, and then the dispersal of communities after that. So that was a similarity between Atlanta and Baltimore. And then Memphis, you know, it's just, you know, you can see like in South Memphis, the impact of, you know, pollution in particular, the same way you can see in South Baltimore, the impact of pollution down there by the the waterfront and Curtis Bay and Westport and you know, the industrial activity down there. Um, so, yeah, like the cities that I've been in, sort of gave me, I think, some context. And then, you know, I could see those similarities when I came to Baltimore. Yeah, and that's, that's very unique. I mean, particularly when we talk about, like, from a socioeconomic perspective, uh, and then we disaggregate just, like, the lived African-American experience in these communities. Uh, we see the same exact things. Um, like you said, environmental justice issues, uh, housing uh, uh, types of, of issues, uh, public safety concerns, mm -hmm. and clearly at the core of all of that is schooling. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, when we have like well-traveled individuals like yourself uh, that's able to go from city to city, I think a lot of times we get caught up on kind of understanding our own systemic issues, but we have to really know that this was a structure or institutional uh, uh, type of undertaking that has created the current situations we're in, and it's not necessarily unique to places like East and West Baltimore. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had a guest on, my first inaugural guest was the former mayor of Baltimore, uh, Mayor Kurt Schmoke. And I asked him, you know, when we look at, as it relates to um, the uh, racial wealth gap, uh, uh, particularly in Baltimore city. And then we, we tie that to um, the lack of, um, of, of bustling African-American businesses. I mean, we're starting to see a lot, uh, you know, crop up over the past couple of years, but you know, there was a time 30, 40 years ago, Baltimore was home to over a dozen of the top 100 African-American owned businesses in the country. And then you look at places like Atlanta in that same time frame that has just completely, you know, shot up. I think they're home to like eight of the top 20 uh, in America. Mm -hmm. And I asked them, I said, like, what do you think the difference are has been? Uh, why are we trending the wrong way? Uh, and he really talked about this idea of globalization. Uh, and when the consolidation of banks and other things started to happen, somehow it 
it, it outpaced in Baltimore City in comparison to some other places. And we see kind of those implications. I know that it's probably much, much more than globalization. Um, but, you know, all the things that you kind of talk about in your book, it's hard to eradicate if we don't get ahead of it from a socioeconomic perspective. You know, we can constantly push policy, 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 which is great uh, as it relates to social policy. But until we're able to see that ecosystem of, of that dollar revolving around in our communities, um, you know, it's really hard to get ahead. So just really want to hear like your take on it uh, from an economic side of it when we talk about all the systemic issues that you lay out in your book. Sure. I mean, there's one word that really unites both the social side and the economic side, and that's hypersegregation. You know, Baltimore is the pioneer for urban apartheid in America. I mean, on December 19th, 1910, Baltimore Mayor John Barry Mahul passed the first residential racial zoning ordinance in American history. So you, when you have that kind of history, Baltimore today is a category five hypersegregated city. So like a hurricane, category five is the most intense, most devastating form of racial segregation that we have. Now on the surface, that looks like social policy, black and white people not living together. But in fact, it's actually economic policy. And I, I basically say in the book that you have, well, there's a scholar named Noliwe Rooks. She coined the term segronomics. And segronomics in my book, I define as the weaponization of racial segregation. And it's that. So socially, black and white people were segregated. But then economically, once black and white people were segregated into different neighborhoods, now black neighborhoods were redlined, denied capital. Now they were subprime, offered predatory capital. So it's that hypersegregation is achieving both social separation and economic devastation. And I think that's the root cause of issues in Baltimore, particularly in the Black Butterfly. And, you know, for instance, Atlanta, I believe, is a category three highly segregated city, as is Memphis, category three. So Baltimore being category five is more intense here. The devastation of hypersegregation here is more intense. And is that, I think it's uh, seven cities that are category five. Is that right? Um, Eight of them, yes. Is that Chicago, Flint, Detroit, Birmingham, St. Louis, Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Baltimore? Yes. And it's interesting because, you know, when we talk about um, deindustrialization uh, and we talk about things like white flight, uh, we talk about uh, the way uh, transportation is anemic. Uh, in basically all of those areas, meaning like mass trans transportation, you know, again, you start to peel back and you see all these similarities. Uh, and, you know, when you conflate them together, you know, you, you get environments like we see and in, 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 in the residual effects of what we like currently see today. I, I think it's really interesting. You, you talk a lot about like race and space and how they kind of correlate. Uh, and when you look at the subtitle of your book, Harmful Politics and Race and Space in America, um, you basically break down uh, from a Baltimore city government perspective and talk about how we've displaced a staggering 21,000 black households between 1940 and 2010 through a, a variety of, of government sanctioned programs. Um, for those who kind of do not understand the concept uh, and understand the implications of, of what something like that does, can you break that down to us today? Sure. Well, there's a scholar at Columbia University. Her name is Mindy Thompson Fully Love. She wrote a book called Root Shock. I love and how you I love how you shout out everybody. 
<laughs> or you know, scholars. You know, we just like, we don't just come up with stuff on our own. We're yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I appreciate so. that, but but you could be sitting on here just educating us and not providing any context. So I appreciate that. Absolutely, and you know, she's one of my great heroes, uh, scholarly heroes. In her book Root Shock, she talks about that when you uproot people, when you displace them forcibly and involuntarily, when you do that, you you're inducing all kinds of emotional trauma, psychological trauma, because we as human beings, we're connected to the places where we live. That's why you can drive home right now. Well, when we were in our offices, and maybe some of us are back in our offices now, but, or if you went to the store, you don't have to think, you know, at every turn, I must turn left, I must turn right, because where you live becomes a part of your mental map of the world. So you can drive almost unconsciously in a familiar place and get to where you need to be. Now, imagine that's torn away because you've been forcibly uprooted. And that is psychologically part of the damage. The other part of the damage is you're torn away from your social networks, uh, your neighbors. So in black communities, we know black communities are very strong uh, when people have their neighbors that they know and that they trust. And really, that's another part of the devastation, because if any of our grandparents, they can tell you, you know, if they grew up in an urban area or even a rural area, sometimes that if they got in trouble at school, they got pulled up when they got home. But before they got home, they could be pulled up at the corner by Miss Smith. Then they could be pulled up three houses away by Mr. Johnson. And then they got another uh, discipline or sanction when they got home, the community was involved in structure, in discipline for children, and that structure and discipline helped with Black neighborhood cohesiveness. So when you uproot people and you displace them, Black people, you're you're getting rid of all that structure. You're getting rid of all of that uh, so-and-so down the street, you know, can pull up my child. Now I don't know you. Now I don't want you disciplining my child. And so it's really that very thing, the loss of social networks, the loss of discipline and structure, because you've uprooted people, moved them all over the place. And now when the children grow up, that structure isn't there. And that's where you get to the 70s and 80s, crime, violence, uh, drug trade, gang violence, uh, the crack cocaine epidemic, that sort of thing when it all sort of went to, you know, a, cr a craziness at that point in time in black communities. So in the 60s and 70s, you had, well, 50s, 60s and 70s, you had urban renewal, which James Baldwin called Negro removal. And that was happening at a massive level, same as highways being built through black communities happening at a massive level. And that's actually the experience of, of my family. Um, yes. My family's home was on Mulberry Street in Franklin Square community. Yep. Uh, and the highway to nowhere literally ran right through it. Um, yep. Uh, uh, and we see the, the current state of that community today. Yeah. I mean, and those are the main two. I mean, there's others like slum clearance and today gentrification. But the 50s, 60s and 70s, when you had urban renewal and highway construction through black neighborhoods around the country that one two combination devastated black neighborhoods around the nation and i think we don't i'm glad you brought it up because 
a lot of journalists, they do talk about segregation, but we don't hear this national discussion about displacement. And it's really, those are the one, two macro forces. And then inside displacement is urban renewal and highway construction that uprooted millions of black families. And then if, if folks weren't uprooted, uh, they develop other solutions like widening of streets. Yep. So like the huge expansion, say, in West Baltimore of uh, West North Avenue, uh, where you literally split neighborhoods. So you, you took mm. Mount Royal and you created Reservoir Hill and Bolton Hill, mm. which at one time was the same community. Yep. Streets ran through one another. The Again, the, the, the artery in between was was much smaller. Um, and mm. we kind of lose sight of all of that. Um, I know another like principle that you constantly kind of go back to uh, is talking about like historical trauma on the way it's inflicted. Black communities. And I think that, um, you know, all the stuff that we're talking about through urban renewal, through segregation, through these policies that were literally state sponsored um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, policies that have 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 showed the implications today and the um, the concerns that we have through systemic issues today. When we, when we talk about uh, historical uh, trauma that's been inflicted on communities, can you kind of go a little deeper into that and, and tie it to what we currently see today? Sure. Well, the concept was developed by a Native American scholar named Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart, who's Lakota, and her tribe is Lakota. So she wanted to really look at why did she see the things in the Native American community that she was seeing. And so she developed this to say that when you have this massive amount of trauma that's inflicted on a population, it doesn't just impact that generation. It leaves damage in future generations as well. And then in my book, I highlight another scholar. Her name is Maria, I mean, Michelle Sotero. And in her model of historical trauma, she highlights four different elements of historical trauma. Segregation displacement, which we've been talking about. Physical slash psychological violence, which we're seeing in terms of police violence right now nationally. Uh, economic destruction, which we've also been talking about, redlining, subpriming, and then cultural dispossession. We haven't mentioned as much, but that's things like, you know, people losing their way of life, their religion, their names, their dress, their, their diets. So when you have those four components, those are components of the mass trauma experience. And in Michelle Sotero's model, again, it, it doesn't just impact that primary generation, the first generation. It has an impact on the secondary and subsequent generations. And so in my book, I call it ongoing historical trauma. It doesn't just, it, it's not just in the past. It started in the past, but it's still going on. And so ongoing historical trauma then, really, I, I think in track six of my book, I call my chapters tracks. In track six, I end up, I believe, talking about black neighborhood destruction. And that that's the impact when you have black neighborhoods constantly under assault for decades, even centuries, then over time, black neighborhoods are ultimately destroyed. And so I think that's the real implication I try to arrive at and explain in my book. So when we talk about um, the communities and the shaping of the communities, I mean, everything you just laid out, the first thing I thought of is, that, this has been going on for 400 years. These same like principles and concepts you can apply uh, to you know our ancestors and how they were constantly uprooted and how you know these things that were supposed to help them, like say like the Freedmen's Bank, mm -hmm. um, how it was always kind of um, 
uh, something that further uh, disenfranchised them, um, that further exacerbated whatever current living conditions that they were in, uh, and always went at this idea of you know being free and having the promise to live out this great American dream and this great American life. And then again, when you conflict that and you extrapolate that all the way to today, uh, and these same you know state-sponsored uh, type of initiatives, you know, how are we still standing? When you look at the conditions of our communities and the concerns that we have, it kind of only speaks to the ability of resiliency. Um, you know, how, how are we still standing today? What's your thoughts around that thought process? Well, I think what allowed us to get over, as it were, was community. Like, and, you know, when you're talking about Black people in slavery to slave trades, Black people being sold down the river, Baltimore was a, a port city for the internal American slave trade. So people were shipped from the harbor, inner harbor, down to New Orleans, down to Mobile, Alabama, to boost the cotton economy in the Deep South. What allowed Black people to survive the, the, the terror of slavery was community forming families with fictive cousins and, and godmothers and godfathers. And we formed families and communities as best as we could. And, and it's that bonding between people that allowed the resiliency that you're talking about. And so I think it's paradoxical perhaps in some ways that the in some ways black community or black community making was in many ways quite strong and all the way up until again urban renewal and highway destruction and highways being built through black communities because even though slavery and the slave trades were terrible the wholesale plantations weren't uprooted you had people being split and sold down the river but you know, people could still form a community uh, by and large. But once you get to the 1950s and 60s, you have these rapid successions of uprootings that are taking place, and it doesn't give the Black community as a whole time to recover. You know, when you have your whole block uprooted in this place and nobody knows where each other went, and you, you have it happening back to back, urban renewal, highway construction, mass incarceration, gentrification. You have these boom, 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 boom happening rapidly and repeatedly doesn't give black communities time to recover. And I think at this point, this is why we see another level of devastation because of that rapid urban succession of uprootings and displacements that just haven't given black communities time to recover. And then when we look at today, like in 2021, you got to add, I would assume, COVID-19 to that, um, the way it has disproportionately impacted uh, black and brown communities uh, and the loss of loved ones. Again, uh, the trauma that comes with that. Um, when we talk about um, the underlying health issues that we've always had based to our environment, um, but now we're talking about um, ongoing additional health issues, um, you know, we, and we still don't understand and know how that's going to affect the uncertainties around folks who have been able to recover from COVID uh, and, and how that's going to play out. So I would assume that COVID-19 kind of fits into um, kind of that flow of, of different events that you just talked about. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think health broadly, you actually are on the doorstep of, of the thesis of my book, which is 
one sentence that we cannot make black lives matter if we don't make black neighborhoods matter. That's the heart of what I'm getting at. And I think what we do uh, is focus on black lives lost at the hands of police, which we should. But if we're going to care about black lives overall, then we have to care about the neighborhoods and the spaces and places where black people live, because that is where that is what is helping to explain why there's a greater burden of disease from diseases like COVID or HIV or toxic lead exposure. Any of these are all you can once you look at racial segregation, you can pretty much tell from there how and why black communities are going to be more impacted because segregation, hyper segregation, especially results in these two things, the hyper allocation of resources to white communities and the hyper deprivation of resources in black communities. And that then is what's helping to determine how people can thrive or survive health conditions and new diseases like COVID. And that's also somewhat state sponsored. I know we constantly talk about disproportionate funding. Like, so you look at, you know, certain services or certain amenities uh, from community to community and you see the disproportionate amount of funding. Um, but also the trick is the disproportionate, the disproportionate amount of defunding in certain things, um, you know, where streets aren't getting paved the same amount of, you know, the grass is not necessarily getting cut in this area. Um, just, you know, basic like city services. Um, the, the one question I have for you, and this is uh, somewhat of a curveball, but uh, removing COVID-19 and kind of talking about all the things we spoke of from redlining to all the different state sponsored concerns that you brought up. Is there one that you can kind of point to today that you see as something that we could talk about in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years and point back to as a major concern during this particular era? What are we really getting wrong mm. today that potentially has major implications on generations to come? Oh, well, as a public health professional, I'm going to say toxic lead exposure, our inability to do what Flint is doing, although for slightly different reasons, to, to declare a state of emergency over toxic lead exposure and get it out of our communities once and for all. Because if you care about academic achievement, toxic lead is messing with the cognitive functioning of the brain. There's science that really talks about how actually part of the brain that it really impacts is the executive reasoning portion of the brain. So that's the part of the brain that's going to help you make rational decisions. And it's also correlated with aggressivity, impulsivity. So people's ability to regulate their emotions, that is going out the window when you have toxic lead exposure. So the way that Baltimore City does or does not handle toxic lead exposure, to me, that is the bellwether indicator of where we want to go in the future. Because the more you don't address it, then the more crime and violence is going to be. The more you don't address it, the more academic issues we're going to have. And we know, you know, people talk about the school to prison pipeline. Well, I say it's a toxic lead to school to prison pipeline. And so wow. I think that's the thing. I want to cut off the pipeline. And that's what I think Baltimore City has to address. And then when we start to identify again, the historic trauma that it plays out when we talk about the generational issues that it has created. Um, literally, parents with lead paint poisoning issues, uh, having children that now have lead paint poisoning issues. 
Um, but the disgusting thing, and I'm going to use a very strong word in disgusting, is the manufacturers of this lead paint knowingly continue to create and sell it in cities like Baltimore. Uh, and they knew the implications on, on, on our health. Uh, and to date, they have not been responsible of paying one penny uh, as it relates to uh, eradicating it, uh, not just from Baltimore, but from, from places uh, uh, throughout the country. I know that there was some significant legislation in Wisconsin that their state assembly ultimately reversed. And there has been some wins that are still tied up in court in California. You know, as a state delegate, I constantly sponsored the market share liability type of tort uh, a law to go after, you know, these uh, manufacturers of lead paint, they would fly in every single lobbyist from any and everywhere uh, to try to fight and kill that bill. Uh, but you're exactly right. The fortitude to really go after that industry and reclaim, you know, our communities in a way that we have not from an environmental justice perspective is vital to everything you listed from, again, education uh, to healthcare care uh, to to public safety. Um Right now, this council, you know, we've done a lot to try to dig into some of the city contracts. You know, I've utilized my, my position over the Board of Estimates as a way to, like, really peel back the onion and push back contracts. I mean, some consistently seeing, like, minority women-owned business waivers. I love talking about the trauma. I love talking about the failed policies. I love talking about where we are today. But again, what I think is is definitely at the foundation and base of it is us controlling our own economics and ensuring that when we talk about these black communities, that these are black communities that can be sustainable through economics. One of the biggest travesties associated with the economics is, again, the disproportionate amount of defunding in these communities uh, and the intentional, the deliberate stifling of property value. Um, that's a point that we hardly ever like really dig into. I mean, you look at one community that's built at the same time in a quote unquote white area because our city's very segregated versus another community that's built in a quote unquote black area, almost the same identical houses, sometimes even by the same builders. Uh, and you see the, the property appreciation in one uh, significant to that of the other. I, I remember reading an article maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, and they talked about this block where um, this woman purchased a home and the home was basically worth the same in 20 years that it was when she bought it. Mm. Um, to, 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 when we talk about the racial wealth gap uh, and knowing that from a middle class perspective, you know, buying a house is probably your biggest investment, but also your, your biggest ability to create that generational wealth. When we talk about the racial wealth gap, it must be tied to real estate and is then directly tied to all the things that you list as what they've done to kind of create this black butterfly and really stifle black communities. Um, any points or, or, or any um, observation around that, that connection? Sure. Well, I know in my book, I talk heavily about real estate's role in basically perpetuating what I call the racist wealth gap, uh, because racism is behind the wealth gap. And so I think, you know, the way that uh, you know, you see in, in those articles in 19 teens where the real estate industry um, is promoting lobbying for racial segregation because they want to help boost white property values. That's the idea that black people moving into white communities would somehow decrease property values. So you keep black people out so you can keep white property values up. And that's the logic. And that logic hasn't, we haven't escaped that logic. It, in appraisals, 
We haven't escaped it in real estate. Uh, the way that we, we sell homes and buy homes in this country is, you know, those values are rooted in the racial composition of the neighborhood. And so if we're talking about healing and moving forward, then we have to confront the appraisal industry. We have to confront the real estate industry. We have to look at how we value black neighborhoods and value homes and other uh, retail, commercial, you know, TIFFs. If you want to go into TIFFs and pilots, the way that we, in, well, a lot of people say invest. I don't necessarily like that term, but even the private market invests, but in the public, how we allocate resources, all of that is rooted in the racialized way that we think about black spaces. So we've talked about a lot of the systemic issues um, before we leave. Uh, and I think it's important um, because, you know, what we're taught to do is kind of brush over how we got here. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's really important to dig, dive, dig deep and for us to understand and definitely pass it on to generations uh, behind us. But let's talk solutions. Um, and I know we talked about um, the importance of, 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 of looking and eradicating lead paint uh, from from our communities. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Let's, what are some other solutions that um, you can kind of present to the listening audience today that um, you were able to find through uh, the research of your book? Well, two that sort of are the bigger proposals that I have. One is the $3 billion racial equity social impact bond. Uh, half of that is addressing toxic lead in the air, the water, the soil, and in people's homes. The other half of that is really, you know, $500 million for housing first for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, another 500 million is for community development in the top 20 or so red line black communities. And then another 500 million uh, that constitutes the 1.5 billion that doesn't deal with lead is really dealing with everything from addressing transit apartheid, food apartheid, banking apartheid, uh, services for substance abuse, mental health, uh, you know, social work and boosting and increasing the number of safe streets so that we can prevent violence more. I think there may be 10 safe street sites now. I think we should be funding 30 or 40 of them because we have violence at a much larger level than the 10 can really handle. So I think, and unfortunately, I have to mention we lost, you know, Dante Barksdale. So we hope he rests in peace. Um, and so I think we really do need to bolster violence prevention because again i you know from a public health standpoint our goal is to prevent you know police come to help stop on our deal with it on the back side i want to deal with it on the front side as much as possible so that's one bucket the three billion dollar racial equity social impact bond and then the other bucket is what i call baltimore or black neighborhood reparations which is based on all the history we discussed earlier having 10% of the city budget for the next 40, 50 years allocated to the top 10 or excuse me, top 20 or so red line black communities, and then having democratically elected neighborhood councils that decide with their allocation of 25, 30 million a year, all right, how do we want to spend that in this community? And so they would talk with folks in the community and then those 15 members, they need to be very diverse in age, in racial orientation, in sexual orientation, gender. You need folks, you know, youth, elders, folks from all across the community who can speak to the needs that that community has. 
And you do that for 40, 50 years or more because we've been in the mess. Baltimore neighborhoods have been in this mess since 1910, 110 years ago. And so it's going to take a while to get out of it. Well, I appreciate you. So the last question on notes from the council chambers, I ask every single guest this. I've constantly told folks I want to be the best uh, city council president uh, that Baltimore has ever seen uh, as it relates to professionalizing the council, as it relates to going after and, and trying to develop legislation that uh, attacks those systemic issues that we're talking about uh, and not being afraid to be very intentional in ensuring uh, that there's equitable um, application of the resources that the city has to offer to, to particularly black and brown communities. In, in saying all of that, if, if you uh, had the ability to, to provide advice uh, to, to me as a city council president, uh, what would you tell me I need to do, should be doing, have to do more of what's your advice to me on notes uh, in the council chambers? <laughs> well, I heard the one time that you said, you know, you had an issue with defund the police uh, as a slogan. And I would just say, no, 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 no. You, I'm glad you brought that up. You got to stop reading uh, these uh, crazy publications and sometimes folks on Twitter. What I said was the council uh, is not here to, um, to utilize emotions, we should be functioning based off of data. And if defunding the police last year during the previous council was really a core competency, um, they failed miserably um, because they told the Baltimore city residents that they cut $20 million from the police budget. Um, but close to half of it was grant funding uh, that only went back to the agencies, federal or state that was providing the funding. And some of the other things we knew were going to come back from a supplemental perspective. Mm. So it's great to like call something, you know, defund the police. Um, but if you're substantively actually not doing that, uh, it's really just rhetoric. Right. And we also saw that I, I, I'm politically, I just say what it is on my mind. Right. So I'm going to put mm. it out there. We also talk about this, how local police structure, right bringing local control back to the citizens of Baltimore. And that's exactly what the bill was called. But that has absolutely nothing to do with what the bill is doing. The bill, what it does in its current form, the form that was passed out of Annapolis, creates this advisory board, right? So this paternalistic Annapolis kind of saying over the city of Baltimore where somehow folks from Dorchester County and Calvert County and Cecil County have a say on our politics. So anyway, they create this advisory board of Baltimore city elected officials and other folks, including the FOP, they come up with a recommendation, provide it back to the governor. Uh, we have to have a city referendum uh, to say that we want it. And then after that referendum, it has to go back to Annapolis for another bill to pass to change Article 2. Mm. So, um, you know, I think and, and you're a scholar, so you understand and appreciate exactly, exactly what I'm saying. We can't just get caught off of how the book cover looks to determine the substance and content inside of the book. And that's the same exact way as it relates to a bill. So, again, the whole thing around defund the police was if you're really going to do it, you're going to have to take time and develop, you know, from a policy and fiscal analysis perspective, where you're going to cut from. You can't just randomly cut from grants that is not really defunding the police. You're just cutting out programs and the money's going back to the agencies and resources in which they came from. And I don't think that was ever really communicated. So that was my point uh, in that in, in that article. And I know. The, the, all my, my Twitter trolls uh, uh, took a snippet uh, of that and, and didn't provide the context of what I was saying. 
Right. Well, I mean, I'm glad to hear the way you explained it now, because I think it's it's clear to me even uh, what you were talking about. So I guess two things I would say, you know, having uh, some kind of forum where, you know, activists can talk with you and, and hear the, the types of thing that you just said, and maybe this is it, you hit, you send it to them. So they yeah. Hear it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's useful. I, I think, if, if, I, if I recall, I think you retweeted or said some stuff on Twitter. I was like, man, I got to reach out to Dr. Brown and see what's Right, going. right, right. Yeah, because like I say, it's different hearing this from the quote that I heard, which I thought you were saying more like that the idea itself was com- was more emotional. Emotion. No, no. Yeah, what I, I was like, well, no, it's what... really what you said earlier, which is that Black neighborhoods have been defunded. And that is why we have to look for sources of funding that will help, again, help us prevent issues instead of having the police issues on the back end. So I think that's the that's the advice that I would give is 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 really in what way can we move as a city to stop the defunding of black neighborhoods? And if that means that we and I appreciate your point, which is saying, you know, if you're just cutting grants, you're not really you got to cut from the general fund. If you're going to do something, the spending that's coming from the general fund itself, that's real dollars, uh, not the grant dollars. So I think. You know, that's the having more discussions around what that would really look like. Um, to me, that's where I would like to see this city go, or at least that's the that's the advice that I would offer. Um, you know, hearing this uh, explanation that you just offered. Well, that means a lot coming from you. I think that we covered a lot in your book, but I also think that we left a lot uh, for folks who have not had a chance to buy a copy or two or three or four copies of it. <laughs> who have not had a chance to read it yet. Um, I think that we let a lot on the table for them to go out and buy it today. If you could just give us a last uh, plug for your book where people can get it. It's all yours, Dr. Brown. Sure. Well, I mean, again, I just want to thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for, you know, having a, a robust conversation. That's what, you know, I love to see from our city council and uh, political leaders overall. So thank you and kudos for the discussion. Hope we and the broader community can keep these type of discussions going. And just for my book, you know, people can go to Urban Reads Bookstore is the one that I really recommend, Black-owned, Sister Tia there. Uh, she's just a great proprietor. Uh, 3008 Green Mount Avenue. Uh, she'll be happy to see you if you go there. And then other local bookstores as well, Charm City Books, uh, Greedy Books, other uh, Red Emma's. These are other bookstores we definitely want you to support local independent. So folks go out buy the black butterfly, the harmful politics of race and space in America. So Dr. Brown, thank you for joining me again from notes uh, from the uh, council chambers podcast. This book you've written is important because it offers data as well as historic context to how we got to where we are today. Uh, be more expect more. Thank you for tuning in to Notes from the Council Chambers podcast. You can listen to this and all future episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, then please subscribe and stay tuned.